mathematically, and this is really important, if a person remembers this formula, it'll save an awful lot of money. Global shortages are causing farm input costs to skyrocket. A better way to farm shows you how to take control of inputs and maximize profits so you can farm the way you want. Now, from America's heartland, here's your host. Hello, thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. This is Rod at A Better Way to Farm, where we improve yields and increase profits. We appreciate you tuning in today, as always, and we have a very exciting episode. We're very blessed that we have a friend who's going to be sharing with us, and I appreciate him taking time out of his busy schedule. But today, we're going to talk about marketing to see if we can get some clarity and some forward motion here for people. And I'd like to welcome to the call, Roger Wright. Roger, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Rod. We really appreciate the opportunity to share our business. And more importantly, we think that what we do can really add to the bottom line of farmers. And at this stage of our operation, that's the most important thing. So thank you very much. You know, you came, you're here because you have the respect of a very good friend of mine, Josh, and that was fantastic. I'm going to start with something that's not on the list, but just kind of a joke. You and I had it earlier. Karen put up on the Facebook page, what would you ask if you had a chance to sit down with a marketing expert? And one of the individuals said, what would you do so that I know how to do the exact opposite? <laughs> and so... <laughs> I just wanted to get that white elephant out of the room because you and I know, I talked to you about it. You know, I, I have had some serious reservations about a lot of these guys. That is not who you are, and I'm excited about it. So let's dive in here. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in agriculture. Well, I grew up on a dairy hog farm in southwestern Ohio, about 60 miles from the Indiana line. And I just love farming. The best day of my life was May 10th, 1963, when my dad quit his guaranteed pension job uh, at the age of 44 years old at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and took his entire pension fund and spent that money to build a, a dairy parlor. Can you believe my mom let him do that? But <laughs> we started milking cows in September 1963. I graduated from high school in 68. I was in the Marine Corps, joined the Marine Corps in April of 71, and they let me finish my education. And then after uh, 1975, I was taught VOAG for a couple years and was offered a job to manage a large farm. I'd bought a small farm planning on working in the farming, but between uh, interest rates uh, going up to 21.5%, inflation going to 13.9% in 79, and then the crash of the 1980s, it just didn't work out for me to be a full-time farmer. After I did some management of some agri-farm operations, I had a ag teacher that said there's just as much money be made marketing as there is in production. And I took that to heart. And so in 1980, I became a commodity futures broker, as well as stock and bond broker. And that went okay. But I spent 90% of my time talking farmers out of doing things that were not in their best interest. I was a broker for Heinel Commodities in Grove City, Ohio, outside of Columbus. I spent 90% of my time 
talking people out of doing things that their brother-in-law who works at the local mechanic shop on automobiles said to buy silver or copper or something like that. It was ugly because every time I talked somebody out of doing something stupid, it cost me money. I didn't make any commission. Well, then the day came in March of 84 when my boss, I got a new boss, called me from Chicago, and he told me I had to lie to my clients to generate commission, that I didn't know what the markets were going to do. Heinold's research people didn't know what the markets were do, and absolutely my clients didn't know what the markets were going to do. So my job was not to help clients make money. My job was to generate commission. So that was my last day as a commodity broker. And I, I wondered, would farmers actually pay for somebody to help them do a better job of marketing who was not a cash carrying broker and who was not a commodity futures broker? And about three days after that, one of our neighbor farmers, a quite prominent farmer, called me and he said, I want to talk to you about doing a better job of marketing. And that was in March of 84, and that's what I've been doing ever since. So that's how I got into the business. I love it, man. I just appreciate the opportunities to not only make a living doing something I enjoy, but to really, for the most part, not always, but be able to help an awful lot of people make more money. So that's that's my background. I'm sorry to talk too much. No, that, that's awesome. You know, in a better way to farm, we believe strongly in education. We know that it's a pillar to success in agriculture, and we love that that's the foundation of your business. Tell us a little bit more about some of the unique aspects of your business. Certainly, ignorance is the number one problem. Whose job is it to teach farmers how to do a better job of marketing? Is it the cash grain merchandiser? No. His job is to buy corn, beans, wheat, rice, as cheap as possible from the guy that's producing it. Is it the commodity broker's job? Well, we already talked about that. No. His job is to generate commission. Who pays the commission? You know, the farmer does. So who does have a responsibility to teach the farmers to do it? Okay, so you got extension courses on it. They don't work where the rubber meets the road. And I, I've been to many, many such classes when I was trying to learn markets. And generally speaking, the people teaching those classes have no real expertise in it. They read the book, and that's what they say. And so there is nobody whose job is to teach farmers how to market grain. And so we... Number one, education is the principle of that. When we, we get a new client, we'll say, well, I'm going to ask you some questions. Now, I'm not trying to embarrass you about how much you don't know and how much I know, but do you know what an HTA is? Do you know the difference between a forward contract and a uh, basis contract? Do you know the definition of basis? Have you ever traded futures? Do you know what a put option is? Do you know what a call option is? Uh, do you know the difference between buying a call and writing a call and selling a call? It, it doesn't take very many questions, and we get a really good idea of where a guy is at in his understanding of the marketing tools, and that's the key. Most farmers will use two different tools to market their grain. There's 
nine different marketing tools that can be used to market grain. And you'd start putting in the combinations of using a couple tools at the same time. And it's kind of like your password. Do you put six digits in your password? And depending on how many different alignments you got, you got thousands of different combinations. Now, there's not thousands of different combinations of way to market grain, but there's dozens and dozens of ways. There's always plan B. There's always plan C. There's always plan D. And there's the market tools out there that will allow farmers to take advantage of unexpected market conditions. No matter how crazy it gets, there's always another way to solve the problem. So ignorance is, is a big part of it. Taking the time to teach the farmers is what we do, but they got to be willing to learn. Everybody wants to do a better job of marketing, but in all honesty, very few farmers are willing to invest the time to learn what they need to learn. That's our biggest obstacle, really. Okay. Talk to me. You did not go with a commission of a percentage. You went with a subscription model. Why did you choose a subscription model over a commission model? It's a conflict of interest. If I have a commodity broker's license and I'm I'm given grain market advice and I have a client that's got a hedge on of 80,000 bushels of corn and he calls me up and he says, I'm thinking about lifting that hedge. What do you think, Roger? And my wife's sitting over there and she wants a new refrigerator at the end of the month, which is five days away. And if this guy liquidates that 80000 I'm going to get a paycheck of several hundred dollars, you know, maybe $1,000. I don't care who you are. That's hard to do. And the other side of it is most guys trade their own accounts, okay? And so if I am a futures trader and I'm long corn, and what you really need to do as my client is to reduce your risk by selling corn, that's also, uh, you know, that's hard to do too. So not only do we not offer brokerage services, I'll add it's the same way for cash grain. We don't do any cash grain. We don't do any futures trading or commission of any type. It's a conflict of interest. And the other side of it is when a client calls, we talk to that client until the conversation is done. If we were a broker, whether a cash grain broker or futures broker, we would have to answer the, every phone call. If somebody called right now and I'm talking to you, Rod, I'd have to say, whoop, whoop, wait a minute here. I got to put you on hold. Got a guy calling. Crude oil just opened. He might want to put in an order. And so all our clients understand that if we are not on the phone and we hear the phone ring, we will answer the phone. If we don't hear it ring or we are on the phone, we'll call them back just as soon as we either get off the phone or as soon as we know that one of our clients tried to call us. That is why we don't do cash grain and we don't do commodity futures brokerage. That makes total sense because you can stay true to your actual, your only responsibility to your people. And I respect that a great deal. So how can our listeners learn how to market grain better and make more profit with less stress? They got to put the time in. I just call a spade a spade. They need to learn the vocabulary. 
One of the things, and I'm sure every farmer's been there, you go into your grain merchandiser and you sit down and you talk to me about something and you're thinking, I kind of think I want to do this. And so many grain merchandisers start talking about rolls and spreads and L and N and G and roll from the N to the Z and this kind of thing. And they run off about five minutes of stuff and then they go, you understand what I mean, don't you? Well, you know, the farmer just going to sit there and kind of, well, you know, sort of, you know. That is why farmers are reluctant to talk to merchandisers. Most merchandisers don't want farmers to understand how the markets work. Most commodity brokers don't want farmers to understand how the markets work. Ignorance is very costly for a farmer who's trying to market grain, but an ignorant farmer is a sitting duck for an unscrupulous commodity broker or an unscrupulous grain merchandiser. I can, in fact, I was going to say I can tell you horror stories. We got several of them posted on our website. It's called True Tales in Grain Marketing. Some of them are good, good turnout, and some of them are just criminal of what people have done to uh, farmers. And so the first thing we got to do is farmers got to be willing to put in the time. And that's why we have a full service where we'll we'll talk on the phone as much as a person wants us to talk. We can talk more about grain markets than anybody's ever been able to listen. And so, but, you know, obviously when a farmer begins to get confused, you stop. I mean, you can't learn everything and in one week. If you work hard at it, you can do it pretty good in a year's time if you put 15 to 20 minutes a day into it. And by the way, one of the keys is you got to have somebody you can talk with about the markets almost every day. That may be your wife. It may be your partner. It may be the boys at the coffee shop, but you've got to get familiar with the vocabulary and the concepts. And so learn it and talk about it. It's just like a foreign language. You don't use it, you lose it. That's the keys. Put the time in, learn the tools. If you don't learn how to use the tools, you won't be comfortable with them, and you won't use them, and you'll be leaving money on the table. You know, I believe that there is a lot of money in the ag industry that is generated by confusion. I don't even think it's ignorance. I just think that the industry thrives on creating confusion. So therefore, they can get away with a lot of things. It happens in inputs all the time, and I respect what you're doing there. And I just want to say thank you. How do you stay up to date on the trends, and what resources do you rely on? Well, Rod, I'm telling you, life is so easy. <laughs> um, back in the 80s, for most of the, well, pretty much all the 90s, there's only three places you could get market information. That was from a commodity broker a cash grain merchandiser, or farm radio. Well, good farm radio stations have pretty much gone by the wayside, at least here in the eastern Corn Belt. And uh, merchandisers, they're not going to tell you anything anyway. So you could go to the local elevator where they had a teletype machine, and you could stand there and read everything that it spits out, sort through it for tidbits information, or you could pay the $495 a month and have a teletype machine put in your own office, or you call your commodity broker. Now, commodity brokers generally are more friendly than cash grain merchandisers because 
they need new business to generate commission and a grain merchandiser, he knows the farmers are going to sell the grain. Sooner or later, they're going to sell the grain. So in 1997, I got the Internet, access the Internet, and now I don't need radio. I don't need the cash grain broker. I don't need a commodity broker. I can wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, gee, I wonder if it rained in Argentina like it was supposed to, and I can go look. There's nothing about the grain markets that I need to know, that my clients need to know, that cannot be found on the World Wide Web. It is so sweet, which allows us to devote much, much more time toward education, thinking about the market plan, developing, you know, analyzing the information we get. I call it connecting the dots, okay? And sometimes the dots are very clear and sometimes they're not so clear, but you get the dots from the internet and and I still listen, don't get me wrong, I listen to radio, but it's mostly business news what I listen to. Connecting the dots and then formulating uh the what's gonna happen by connecting the dots and then translating that information into as easy as possible to understand language and farmer talk for our clients to understand why we think what we think and why we think they should do uh, what we recommend. Our primary goal is to keep, educate farmers, keep them informed of the facts that they need to know so they can make an informed marketing decision. Now, we'll tell them what we think they should do, but It's their final decision, and we want to make sure they have the facts to make that decision. And we tell them, if I call you up and I tell you I think you ought to be selling corn and it doesn't make any sense to you, say so. And let's talk about it. Because if I can't convince you that you need to sell corn, then you don't need to sell corn. You know, there's something something wrong with my philosophy on that. But anyway, the Internet gives us so much more information, so much less time to gather, and gives us a lot more time to educate and philosophize about what we think the market might do and and then talk to our clients. Okay. You know, the government seems to be getting involved in everything. Talk to us about how the government policy, you know, the role of government policy in grain marketing, and how do you think this upcoming farm bill is going to affect the market? Well, Rod, you got me with my pants down because I know there's a new farm bill coming up, but that is all I know. And the reason that's all I know is because the time that I would invest to learn what's going on in the farm bill debate is pretty much a waste of time because it's going to change and change and change and change before it's finally passed. Um, What is much more important to our clients is what banks failed today, what countries invoked martial law, what did Joe Biden do uh, yesterday, what did he say he's going to do tomorrow, how much oil did they take out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, when are they going to start buying it, what's the weather in Argentina going to be tomorrow. So I realize, as a grain market person, I really should have a grasp of uh, what's going on in the farm bill, but there's many more things that are much more important 
to affect the here and now for the 2023 crop than me knowing about that farm bill. Uh, that sounds rather crude, uncaring, but that's the facts of life. Sure. So let's talk a little bit. We seem to have, you know, constantly changing weather patterns, and we have for the last 6,000 years. But let's talk about how these weather patterns are going to, how's this going to impact what the farmers need to be thinking about? Well, I've, like any grain person, farmer, market analyst, trying to get a grasp on what the weather's going to do is, is huge. It is huge. And of course, I can remember as a little kid, uh, the family sitting around eating dinner, and when the weather forecast came on, everybody, even the dog, uh, fell dead silent, okay? Because that's weather is probably about as important as anything there is when it comes to making money uh, growing crops. I spent 43 years trying to figure out weather. I've talked to every weather guy there is. I've listened to every weather guy there is. You got Tom Skillings was at uh, WGN at the Chicago Board of Trade. And when he, when he would give his midday update, all 4,500 traders on the floor of the Board of Trade stopped. And they listened to what Tom Skilling said. And, and obviously, he was pretty good. But Elwin Taylor is great. You know, there's many people make big bucks. I, yeah, you know, I like um, uh, my mind escapes me. But uh, the young man with um, Nutrient, sponsored by Nutrient, Eric Snodgrass, I think is his name. He, I mean, he really tries to do a good job, and I, I'll pay attention to him once in a while. But honestly and truly, it's all at the Pacific Ocean the water temperature at the equator of the Pacific Ocean. We watch that. The National Weather Service have buoys stretched from South America into across Australia, north of Australia, at the equator, all the way in the Indian Ocean, and they monitor the water temperature and the wind direction, and they chart it. The water temperature is charted every seven to ten days, and you get that. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that will more accurately than anything, anything that I have found in 43 years will tell you what the weather's going to do the next 30 to 60 days. Now, it's, it's not worth a hoot as far as 90 days out. If you know what the next 30 to 60 days are going to be, that is really valuable information. I'll just tell you, the reason the drought uh, area has shrunk in the Corn Belt uh, here over the winter is because we went from the water temperature at the equator of the Pacific uh, being more than a half a degree Celsius below normal to now it's a half a degree above normal. And that's the difference between warmer and drier in the Corn Belt and cooler and wetter in the Corn Belt. That water temperature is very accurate for the next 30 to 60 days out. And so right now, we're looking at April is going to be above normal rainfall. It'll probably be wet into the early part of May for sure, based on that water temperature. And I think it's probably going to be wet through May. Now, I am not predicting a 1993 kind of wet where we're not going to get the corn planted or a 2019 kind of wet, but... Let's say it's April 20th, and a farmer's thinking, gosh, I could almost plant corn today. Well, if you know it's going to be a drier than normal spring, you wait. 
But if you know it's going to be a wetter than normal spring, maybe you go ahead and start planting that day. And that's valuable information. Absolutely. I appreciate that. So, you know, the, the markets move continuously 24 hours a day anymore. Your website says that clients have access to you 24-7. Why is that important? And how do you engage with those clients? Well, the weather doesn't stop changing over the weekend or overnight. The politicians don't stop making stupid decisions on the weekends or overnight. Things change. Things happen. We've had, uh, I guess it's April, the COVID deal. Uh, before, Just before the COVID came out, Saudi Arabia was negotiating with Russia about a quota on how much crude oil they were going to produce. This, was, this would have been March or February of 2020. And on Sunday afternoon, early in March or late February, it was announced that they broke off talks. They weren't going to talk anymore. There was not going to be any quota arrived at, which meant that Russia was going to produce more crude oil because they needed the money. And Saudi Arabia was trying to keep OPEC and Russia from producing quite so much. That meant crude oil was going to go down. That came out at 1.30 on Sunday afternoon, and the market went down. And then we get COVID, and it just crashed and burned. So, I mean, that's just an example. We, you know, we had clients that had hedges on for their diesel fuel, their gasoline, their natural gas. That kind of information is costly, and we just have to be aware of it. And we send emails 365 days a year. Our clients get them at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and it's the latest news that most of it happened after the markets closed the day before. What happened in the evening? What's going on in China? You know, the business day in China starts really before most of us go to bed here in the East. So if a, if a client is laying awake at night worrying about their market, that's torture. I mean, their farm is their life. And we encourage them to give us a call and let's talk them back from the edge of the cliff that it's not quite as bad as they think it is. Or it is as bad as they think it is, and we need to do something drastic, and we need to get it done as quick as possible, and we figure out the best way to do it. I mean, your position, I hope, is on call 24-7, and a grain marketer sometimes needs to be also. Exactly. We're going to get into some questions, and one of them has to do with basis. Now, I have a theory. I believe that basis is actually an Indian word, and translated into English, it means stick it to the farmer. Okay, that's just my personal opinion. And I, I see that because I see the basis move radically beyond what the markets do, and it really impacts in a negative way a lot of people. However, what Ben wanted to know was that would you please explain basis in a correct fashion as opposed to what I just did? Okay, let's do it this way. We got two markets. We've got the futures market, which is the sum total of the world supply and demand. And we got the basis market, and that's the sum total of local supply and demand. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you live in an area that produces more corn than what that local area consumes, then 
the extra corn has to be transported into the world marketplace. And that costs money. And that money is going to come out of the corn producer's pocket. He's the one that's got to figure out how to get it into the world marketplace. He can't make the world marketplace pay for the transportation because the world market price is cheaper. All right. So if it costs him 30 cents to get his corn into the world marketplace, his basis is going to be 30 cents under the world marketplace. By the same token, if a corn producer is in an area that consumes more corn than the area produces, they have to attract corn from the world marketplace. And that costs money. And so the people who are buying corn to bring it to a locale that is corn deficit, they have to pay more for corn, which if you're a corn farmer, that's a good deal because now you get above the world market price on that. That's what basis is all about. What is the local supply and demand compared to the world supply and demand? Mathematically, and this is really important, if a person remembers this formula, it'll save an awful lot of money. Basis mathematically equals local cash price. What are they paying today minus the futures price? Cash is king. It goes first. Cash price minus futures price equals basis. Now, if you're talking about, let's say, fall delivery, and you want to know what the basis is for fall delivery, well, then it's the cash price being offered by the grain merchandiser for fall delivery minus November beans, if we're talking about beans, or December corn, if we're talking about corn, or September wheat, if we're talking about uh, spring wheat, or July wheat, if we're talking about winter wheat. It's cash price minus basis, mathematically. And if that number's negative, then that means your locale's got more corn than it needs, and it's got to transport it out. If it's a positive, your area doesn't have enough grain, and it needs to attract grain from the world marketplace. Does that make sense to you, Rod? Absolutely, it does. Uh, Matt from Facebook asked, he said, how hard is this market going to fall, and when will corn go below $4? Well, a little history on that, okay? In the long run, and farmers need to remember this, in the long run, in a supply and demand market, the average price paid equals the average cost of production. Now, the first time I heard that, I thought, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But after 20 years of analyzing farm records and working with farmers, and watching the markets and studying the markets, that is absolutely true. And let me give you a classic example of the value of understanding that. In 2012, we had December corn got $8.49 a bushel. And there were people saying, because of the drought, that was a drought year, and there were people saying corn will never trade below $6 a bushel again, that we'd reach a new plateau like we did in the 70s. When the 70s started, corn was a dollar a bushel, and when the 70s ended, it was $4 a bushel, and that was because of inflation. And that was, in fact, a new plateau. But in 2012, price of corn was $8 a bushel because of a supply problem, a drought. And I knew 
and everybody else that understood the principle of average cost of production will equal average price paid knew there's no way in the world corn was going to stay above $6 a bushel because at that time, the average cost to produce a bushel of corn was less than $4 a bushel. And guess what? And uh, corn went all the way down to 3 bucks. And so the longer the price stays above the cost of production, the longer and lower and the faster it's going to fall. By the same token, the longer it stays below the cost of production, the, the more confident and the more rapidly that once it does start going up, it'll go up. I mean, that's why they say the best cure for high prices is high, high prices. Produce more, use less. Best cure for low prices, low prices. Produce less and use more. And so we've had, this will be our third crop year of pretty decent prices, second crop year of exceptionally good prices, and usually about three years above the cost of production or three years below the cost of production is about as long as we'll go before the teeter-totter flips the other way. So this is probably the year you really need to be looking hard at getting 24, maybe even 25 crops sold. But the difference is we don't know what the cost of production in 2024 is going to be yet. And we've had people want to sell corn in 2023, sell beans for 2023, and we kept telling them, don't you dare do that until you got your cost production locked in. People don't realize this, but in the 1970s, farmers lost money as a group every year growing corn, growing beans, growing wheat, because the price would go higher in that inflationary time than they've ever seen it before. And they would forward contracted six months, a year before they uh, planted a crop. And by the time they got all the supplies bought, they actually had the corn sold at below break-even price. And the only reason they kept farming was their land increased in value in the 70s more than enough to cover the operating losses. And then, of course, as soon as land prices started to decline in the early 80s, it was Katie bar the door and run for cover. So I think, like always, the market's going to go down hard as soon as the market comes to the conclusion that the crop is made. Now, it may turn out we have a poor growing season. I don't, I don't think so. But you're going to have a high. We were thinking May, but now we're, we're guessing more like June. You need to get a lot of grain sold and get some 2024 crops sold if you're pretty daggone sure you're going to be able to make money with the cost of uh, inputs. Absolutely. So I think you just answered my question here. Joe asked, is this the year to sell my grain out of the field or sell it for contract? And you're thinking over the next 36 months, the contract might be your friend. Yeah. Now, now let's answer that specifically. Joe, there's no way in the world that I can tell you whether this is the year to sell your grain at harvest or put it in the bin. Now, I know what you're thinking, Joe. You're thinking, well, gosh, if corn's $7 a bushel at harvest time, like it was in many places last fall, I need to be selling it. That is not the factor you use to determine whether you should sell your corn or not or your beans. It's basis, the return to storage. If you think that the futures price is going to go up, that is not 
a reason to store corn or beans. The only reason to store corn and beans is the basis is going to improve enough to pay for the cost of storage. And usually in the Corn Belt, it pays to put corn and beans in the bin. Not always, not always. But if there's plenty of corn and beans around at harvest time, usually the basis will improve enough in November and December to pay for the cost of storage. But once you get into January, February, March, as soon as you see that the return to storage is less than the cost of storage, that's telling you to get rid of it. Farmers are the only people who store grain at a loss. Cash grain merchandisers don't do that. They just will not do that. They'd go broke if they did. They got millions and millions of bushels, and if they're losing four or five cents a bushel every month on what they got stored, they won't do it. Only a farmer will do that. And the farmer will do it because he doesn't understand what's going on. Uh, you, we talked about merchandisers making money. You said basis is uh, a way to take advantage of the, of the farmer by grain merchandisers. Basis change is a primary profit center for grain merchandisers. Their job is to buy grain on as weak a basis as possible, put it in their storage facility, hold it until the basis improves, and then sell it, okay? So should you store grain at fall or not? No way of knowing. We won't know that until we get into August, September, and you got a pretty good idea is your local community supply bigger than normal, smaller than normal, about the same as normal, and then take a look at the basis and the cost of storing it. And I know that sounds like a horrific problem for many, many folks, but it's a piece of cake once you understand how to calculate the cost of storage and the return to storage. And that determines where you should put corn in the bin or sell it out of the field. Well, I appreciate it. Let's talk for a minute, if you would, about how can they reach you? How, if they'd like to get more information or maybe take part in your subscription service, how do they get a hold of you? We sell our service by showing people how we can make them money or save them money before we ask for the check. And so it took us, it took us 10, 15, it took me 10 or 15 years to find a IT person that could develop a website that would be about grain marketing. And we finally found a couple guys that were willing to do that uh, several years ago. And so we got a website that's been up for two years now. They can go to the website, and on the home page at the top of it, it's got a click button, a link to click subscribe. You go to that, and you can put your email address in there, and you will get our email free of charge, no advertising. Nobody is going to call you and hit you up for money. And after 30 days, if we haven't earned your money, uh, we haven't earned your confidence, your business, then we don't deserve it. All right. So it's uh, right W-R-I-G-H-T, like Orville and Wilbur, uh, rightonthemarket.com. And that'll take you to the homepage, click subscribe, and you can go get the 30-day trial right there. And our phone numbers are on there. Uh, we have three of us that do answer the phone. And uh, Lance Donlin in Iowa and uh, Alan Boniface in Nebraska and, of course, me in, in Ohio. 
We're available by email. We're available phone, text message. So it's pretty easy to get hold. But strongly encourage folks to get that free trial of emails and let it roll from there. It's either going to do you good or it's not going to do you good. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate that. So they go to writeonthemarket.com and they can reach you there. Last thing, and we'll quit eating up your time here. Any plans that you have for the future with Right on the Market? Yes. I'm 73 years old, folks, and I know way, way more about making mistakes in grain marketing than, than most people I've. I only know one other guy that's been in the grain business longer than I have, but I don't want this business to die with me. And so three years ago, we sought out some younger people to get involved in the business. Uh, they're with us. They're working hard. They're doing a lot of the back office work. They're learning how the market works. And so the next generation, we got we got them well-trained to carry this business on into the next 30, 40 years. They still got a, quite a bit to learn, but they're really coming along great. And then out of the blue, believe it or not, Rod, I had a high school kid call me from Kentucky. His name is Nick Wink. And he said, I want to learn everything there is to know about grain marketing so I can start my own business. <laughs> So he's 18, and we got uh, three guys, three or four guys in their 30s, and one in the 50s, two in the 50s, and now we got the next generation out is in the education uh, business, learning about grain market. So we want this business to keep going and help farmers make more profit through better marketing with less stress. And so my primary job, honestly and truly is teaching the next generations of, of how to help our clients benefit from what we have learned over the, what I've learned over the last 40 years. So that's where well, we're at. Well, I appreciate that. I really appreciate your time, Roger. Thank you. We're going to wrap this up and I'll just say this to our listeners. We hope that you found great value in what we did today. Thanks for tuning in. Roger, thank you for your time. I really do hope all of you out there listening are having a better day. You're listening on the Verbal Crowd Network. Find more great shows at verbalcrowd.com.